It is Friday, October 30th, 2015, and this is Radio Free Burrito, episode 44. Hipsters, flipsters, and finger-poppin' daddies, knock me your loaves. Say whatever you want about me, but I know how to make an entrance, even if it is only with audio. Greetings, Radio Free Burrito listeners. Yes, that's right. This is not not Radio Free Burrito. It is actually Radio Free Burrito. Radio Free Burrito Prime, the actual burrito. Um, I read a story this morning, and it inspired me to record a Halloween episode. It's a bit of an unconventional Halloween episode in that this story is genuinely creepy and genuinely mysterious and in some cases genuinely horrifying, but I think you will agree, ultimately very sad and very tragic. And uh, those are all wonderful emotions to experience during this The Goth Christmas, which is what my friend Warren Ellis calls Halloween. Um, Before I get started with that, I would like to say hello and uh, welcome new listeners. I hope there are new listeners tuning in. Um, Google is doing a podcast directory that is going to allow podcasts to go straight through the uh, music store, play music, so that Android folks like myself can... Not that I'm an actual Android, okay? We all know that I'm a wizard and that I have many clones. I am not a robot, and I will I defy anyone to prove that I'm a robot. Go ahead, I'm waiting. You can't, because I'm not. I am not a robot. Anyway, I just found out, much to my uh, mirth and joyful emotion creating, that uh, Radio Free Burrito has been approved and added to the directory, and uh, hopefully that will uh, expose this podcast to some new people. If you are a brand new listener, what you're going to hear today is actually very uncommon. This is not the kind of podcast I normally do. I don't usually have uh, production of this quality or content that is even remotely as interesting as I think this content is going to be. So, um uh, hello, welcome new listeners, welcome back existing listeners, and in just a moment, um, I will begin reading for you a story that uh, I read earlier today. I'm so, I'm just, I'm not good at this. Like, we just all accept that I'm not good at this. Okay, I'll be right back. <laughs> Spaghetti you can eat with a spoon But oh, SpaghettiOs And eat round spaghetti that'll stay on your spoon But oh, SpaghettiOs Franco-American But oh, SpaghettiOs You know, I ate SpaghettiOs all the time when I was a kid, 
and uh, I thought that they were terrific. I particularly loved those weird meatball things that were sometimes on them, and I was a big, big fan of uh, those weird sort of hot dog things. Uh, but the last time I was exposed to a can of SpaghettiOs, I could not get past the feeling that it just smells like I threw up in my mouth. That kind of like acrid stomach acid thing. I don't know, maybe when I throw up in my mouth, whatever I've thrown up automatically turns into whatever it is SpaghettiOs uses as uh, spaghetti sauce. But um, uh, I guess what I'm saying is don't eat SpaghettiOs. That's also not an actual ad. <laughs> it's an old commercial that I grabbed off of WFMU's Beware of the Blog, which is a fantastic resource if you, like me, enjoy all kinds of weird and uh, sort of uh, ephemeral audio. So to get into this week's uh, big focus of this episode, uh, two things uh, sort of lead into it. Um, the first thing is this season of American Horror Story, which is called Hotel. Um I, I'm not a huge fan so far. Um, I really enjoyed the first season of American Horror Story, which was retroactively called Murder House. Uh, I thought Asylum was pretty good up until they got to all the fucking UFO stuff, which just didn't... I, I, was just, I just thought that's like completely unnecessary and just seems like they put in that for the sake of being weird. We do not speak of Coven... And then I liked most of Freak Show. There were points where I felt that Freak Show uh, sort of bailed on the promise of the premise, but in general, I really enjoyed it. And one of the things that I've enjoyed about this series, regardless of how I feel about the writing, is that all of the production aspects are fantastic. The photography, the... um, the editing is incredible. The design from the costumes to the makeup to the sets is incredible. And the acting, I think, is just absolutely flawless. I mean, it is just magnificent. And the actors in that, uh, that are in this sort of like, can we call it a company that is constantly coming back to do more episodes of American Horror Story, they are just sensational and I love them. All of that said, I nearly gave up on American Horror Story Hotel after the second episode this season. If you haven't watched this, skip ahead a few minutes because it's going to be a little spoilery, um, and uh, uh, I would hate to wreck it for you if you haven't watched it yet, but uh, now I'm going to wreck it for you if you haven't watched it yet. I was really bothered by the sexual violence in the first couple of episodes, Um, not because uh, I think you know, not because I have a problem with violence in uh, in, in media, uh, especially like that. I, mean, I think we know what we're, we're going for. But it seemed very gratuitous. It seemed lazy. Uh, it seemed designed to shock rather than move the story forward in any meaningful way. Um, and, and honestly, it just felt very cheap to me. Um, I also felt that there was just all this gore. And I'm not squeamish, you know. I'm not, not, not lame about that kind of stuff. Um, but... I, I I really felt like, you know, this is just sort of like those 
pick any one of those shitty fucking torture porn movies that were inexplicably popular for five minutes a few years ago. It just seems to me like this is not about a story. This is not, there's nothing psychological about this. This is entirely about like, uh, just being intense and extreme for the sake of being intense and extreme. And I was really disappointed in that because like I said, there's a lot about this show that I absolutely love. Then at the end of the second episode, which by the way, I just, I there's a thing in the second episode where uh, Kathy Bates, who is a phenomenal actor, sits down, uh, Wes, what's his name, who's like the lead guy this year, and is like, hey, you, but mostly the audience, I'm just going to tell you everything about this uh, this hotel so you know all about it, so you know why you're supposed to care. And it was so lazy, and it was so just like... I think that if you have to do that as a writer, then you don't, then you haven't earned the right to tell the story in the location. If you have to like lay out for the audience, if you have to tell rather than show what's going on because the audience isn't going to be able to follow otherwise, maybe you're a little too high concept for things. Um, and at the end of that episode, after she goes on and on basically saying, hey, audience, go look up H.H. Holmes and uh, the book Devil in the White City, and you'll understand all the history of this hotel and why you're supposed to care this year. Um, I, uh, I was like, that's it. I'm out. I'll give it one more episode. And Anne agreed with me. So we sat down to watch the third episode uh, last week. And 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 said, I don't want to watch the show anymore. And I said, listen, let's just give it one more. I think that there's enough in it that it's deserved. Like, you know, it's earned one last go around. And we were like, she was like, OK. So we watched it and it, I really liked it. Uh, it I felt like they, the the writing had finally caught up to all the other aspects of their production that I love so much. And uh, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with it next week, although it's going to remain on probation, I think. Um, and that reminds me that I still need to write this thing that I've been meaning to write for a long time about why it's okay to break up with TV that, that you're not enjoying. Okay, so that's one half of what led to this thing that I'm going to read for you today. The second thing is that I was up in Portland visiting my sister right before Rose City Comic Con, and we were in a rental car. And uh, here's the thing I've learned about being in rental cars, because I usually listen to uh, podcasts on my phone or you know, I tell it to sort of shuffle through my music library or we have the satellite radio. So we're kind of flipping between the um, various you know, genre stations on the satellite radio. Um, regular, traditional, like terrestrial radio. Um, uh, hey, Hey, obvious man, what do you want to say about that? It's not very good, Will. Thank you, obvious man. You're welcome. By the way, you look amazing today. Ah, thanks, obvious man. I'm just saying what everyone thinks. It was obvious man, everybody. Obvious man, ladies and gentlemen. So, um, it's just not very good. And uh, if you, uh, unless, unless you love country music, uh, ranty talk radio style preachers, um, or uh, uh, the same five pop songs. If you like that, dude, save yourself some money. Just get the cheapest radio you can have. You're set for the rest of your life. Uh, but we're driving to downtown from the airport, and whatever station happens to be on the radio is playing this guy, and he's talking about paranormal stuff. Now, here's the thing about me. 
I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in psychics. I don't believe in telekinesis. I don't believe in any of that stuff. Uh, it just, if it cannot be tested and, and proved by science, uh, it's something that doesn't exist. Um, that said, oh my God, you guys, I love the paranormal. I am crazy about it. I love it. I love stories about ghosts. I love stories about weird cryptozoology. I love stories about hauntings. Uh, parenthetically, you guys, the Enfield haunting on A&E this year is three episodes of a story. It's just, that's it. It's three and out, and it's really wonderful and really great, and I think you'd really like it if you enjoy these things the way that I do. Um, they say that it's based on true events. Good for them. I don't believe the events actually happened, but it's still really, really fun to watch it and enjoy it. Back in the late 90s, um, I loved listening to the Art Bell Show because I loved these ideas about like, oh, the Denver airport is secret alien landing base. The lizard people live in tunnels underneath Los Angeles. There's ghosts everywhere. The moon has a base on it. Just all that stuff. It is, it is the greatest fiction ever. Uh, and then around the time Barack Obama was, was elected, uh, a lot of these broadcasters who I had always enjoyed because they were like kind of ridiculous, uh, like paranormal conspiracy people, they basically became like birthers and like thinly veiled racists. And they basically just became unhinged. And it became one of those really uncomfortable dinners with your relatives where you, you know, have to sort of go, yeah, you, you realize that like, you know, Jade Helm 15 doesn't mean that they're, they're coming to, to take you and and no uh, the president himself is not going to come knock on your door and take away your arsenal of weapons that you have uncle jack you don't i don't know why you're so worried about that um and they just stopped being fun to listen to but this guy and i'm blanking on his name and i apologize for that uh it is something that i should have done as research this guy was telling a story basically about a hotel in los angeles that like murders people and he's talking about this hotel downtown, and he keeps talking about this girl called Elisa Lamb. And some of you may have heard of this this young woman. It's a very tragic story, this, the, which I'm going. I'll get into a little more in a, a little more detail in a moment. But he's tell, talking about her story, and then he's talking about uh, uh, American Horror Story Hotel is sort of. Uh, loosely inspired by the hotel where she uh, died and uh, uh, then he's sort of going on about weird UFO ghost conspiracy things and it was like I said really like really really entertaining to me to listen to that so this morning uh, I was having my coffee as I do in the mornings and I was uh, reading a newsletter that my friend Sean Bonner sends out. And Sean is really smart and uh, just has really interesting uh, uh, like feelers in the world and, and is always bringing uh, uh, like thought-provoking stories into my brain. And that's one of the reasons I love his newsletter. There will be a, a link to where you can subscribe to it in the show notes if you're so, in, so inclined. And he linked to a story uh, online um, uh, at, uh, at Medium by a guy called Josh Dean. And uh, the story was called American Horror Story, The Cecil Hotel. I'm going to read the logline to you. It started out as a routine missing persons case, 
But by the time the internet was done with her, Elisa Lam had become a macabre celebrity, a conspiracy magnet, and the inspiration for a TV series. So this story brought together these two things that had been on my mind recently, right? American Horror Story and the story that I had heard from this weird dude on the radio when I was up in Portland. And uh, I read it and I was fascinated by it. And I thought, you know, I could probably produce this story kind of in the style of lore a little bit, maybe in the style of, you must remember this a little bit, and I would probably have a pretty cool Halloween kind of story to present to the audience this year So, uh, for Halloween. So um, I sent an email to the, the, the writer, Josh, and I said, hey, I do a podcast. I would love to license your work to use in the podcast. And he emailed me back and he said, uh, wow, that's really awesome. Um, and by the way, thanks for writing the thing about people being paid for their work because I'm a freelancer and people should be paid for their work. And I said, sent back to him, you know, funny you should mention being paid for your work. I would like to pay you for your work. So we arranged a licensing fee. Uh, I paid him a licensing fee and he gave me permission to read and record and produce this for today's episode of Radio Free Burrito. So um, I'm going to take a quick break to refill my water, and when I come back, I will uh, tell you the story of the Cecil Hotel, and particularly how it relates to the life and death of Elisa Lamb. My name is Will Wheaton. You are listening to Radio Free Burrito, and I will return momentarily. was significantly longer for me than it was for you due to the magic of uh, post-production and whatnot. I uh, did a little bit of research and I looked up and I found that the, uh, the guy in Portland who I heard, his name is Clyde Lewis and his show is called Ground Zero Radio. I took a look at his website and check this out. Mothman summoning the demon Pazuzu. Okay, first of all, that a demon would be called Pazuzu is amazing. Because it's like every time a bell rings, the demon gets its wings. Winged humanoid entities have been witnessed since ancient times. They appear to be harbingers of death and destruction and feared by those who encounter them. From Pazuzu to Mothman, remember Mothman? They've left an indelible impression upon civilization as depicted in art and architecture. And then he talks about them, I guess. Anyway, uh, it looks like just from the front page, most of the shows are sort of paranormal right now. The last time I looked at this website a while ago, uh, there were like two paranormal things and then a whole bunch of like, you know, the government's coming to get you things, which I just could not be less interested in. But anyhow, I'm going to do for you my version of the podcasts that I love. Uh, some of these podcasts include Lore, The Memory Palace, um, and uh, you must remember this. So this was written by Josh Dean. It was published at Medium. I am reading it with his permission. And uh, unless I explicitly note otherwise, when I use personal pronouns, 
I am reading directly from his story and uh, referring, he is in that situation referring to himself. So here we go. It started out as a routine missing persons case, but by the time the internet was done with her, Elisa Lamb had become a macabre celebrity, a conspiracy magnet, and the inspiration for a TV series. On January 27, 2013, 21-year-old Elisa Lamb stepped off a train from San Diego in downtown Los Angeles, gathered her belongings, and walked to a hostel on Main Street. It was, like most every midwinter day in L.A., sunny and in the mid-60s, the kind of weather that makes people never want to leave. Under such conditions, when a warm, low-angle winter sun softens the entire landscape, it's possible to not fully absorb the reality that this 54-block section of L.A. is one of the city's most troubled districts. Even so, Lamb would have passed by evidence. A few old tents pitched under awnings, shelters made from tarps tied up to light poles, and men slumped asleep on flattened boxes. This stretch of downtown is notoriously seedy, home to many of the city's worst addicts and most destitute citizens. The police consider it a containment zone for the homeless. On maps, the area is actually labeled Skid Row, and Main Street, in particular, is its heart. Things are changing a little as developers bring condos, high-end cocktail bars, and three-digit tasting menus to the neighborhood. But these magnets for gentrifiers stand side by side with the tent camps and soup kitchens, and the old Art Deco apartment towers and high-rise hotels along Main are still largely single-room occupancy establishments where the local authorities stash down-and-out residents. Lamb's Hostel, although the owners call it a boutique hotel, is known as the Stay on Main, and it occupies several floors of just such a building, the Cecil Hotel, a once grand place with 700 rooms over 14 floors that has slid gradually into decay. But Lamb probably didn't know any of this, Like many other travelers to downtown L.A., she probably picked the place from its innocuous online photos. The rooms look decent enough, and the lobby, adorned with brass and marble, is actually impressive looking. She planned to stay four nights, checking out on January 31st to head up to the next stop on what she'd been calling her West Coast tour. Neither the size nor the shabbiness of the Cecil seemed to bother her much. This is what she wrote on Tumblr. It was built in 1928, hence the Art Deco theme. So yes, it is classy. But then, since it's L.A., it went on crack. Fairly certain this is where Boz Lerman needs to film The Great Gatsby. She tagged the post, Hashtag we, it's sunny. Lamb was Canadian and had spent parts of the previous three years studying at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver but struggles with depression had caused her to miss more classes than she'd attended. The California trip was meant as a break from that life, a long-planned journey that she'd been calling my whirlwind adventure. Her parents, immigrants from Hong Kong, didn't like the idea, but Elisa was comfortable traveling alone. She used trains and buses to get around, checked in every day from the road, 
and sporadically posted pictures to Facebook. In San Diego, she'd gone to the zoo and to a speakeasy where she lost a Blackberry she'd borrowed from a friend. In LA, she went to a taping of Conan O'Brien's TV show and explored downtown by foot. On the afternoon of January 31st, Elisa Lamb walked a few blocks to the last bookstore where she bought books and records to take home as presents. She was very outgoing, very lively, very friendly, the bookstore's manager, Katie Orphan, said a few days later. Lamb was worried that her purchases would be too heavy to carry around on the rest of her trip. That evening, she was spotted in the lobby of the Cecil. Then, Elisa Lamb vanished. One week later, on February 6th, detectives from the LAPD's Robbery Homicide Division held a press conference. They were appealing for the public's help in the mysterious disappearance of a 21-year-old Canadian tourist who was last seen at the Cecil Hotel on the night of January 31st. Police described the tourist, Elisa Lam, as an Asian woman of Chinese descent, with black hair and brown eyes, who stood 5 foot 4 and weighed 115 pounds. In a press release which included a recent photograph of Lamb, smiling, in glasses, with her hands tucked into the pockets of a pink and blue plaid hoodie, the LAPD said Lamb's disappearance was suspicious and may suggest foul play. The department asked for anyone with tips to call. Lamb's parents had become worried about their daughter when she didn't call home on February 1st, breaking her pattern of daily contact. By the time LAPD announced Elisa's disappearance, her family had already been in town for a few days to help with the search. The unusual part is she was in contact with her parents every day, a police spokesperson said. The contact just stopped. The Lambs were at the press conference, standing behind Lieutenant Walter Teague as he briefed reporters. There's been no communication at all, Teague said. That's worried us and the family, so we're proceeding with the investigation. Despite the press conference, the case was fairly low profile. It received more attention back in Canada than it did in Los Angeles, where the suspicious disappearance of a young woman, though not exactly common, wasn't a rarity either. And with no news to report as the days went on, coverage of her disappearance basically ceased. That was until February 13th, when the LAPD summoned the public's help again. This time, the department released a video. They couldn't confirm it at the time, but the video was taken by the Cecil Hotel's elevator security camera in the early hours of February 1st. It was, as it turns out, the last known footage of Lamb. And it was so strange, so creepy, so inexplicable, that the release turned the case inside out. The video is 3 minutes and 59 seconds long. It features Elisa Lamb, and only Elisa Lamb, getting into one of the Cecil's elevators sometime after midnight on January 31st. It begins with Lamb, casually dressed in a red hoodie, black shorts and sandals, walking into the elevator car. She crouches down inside to look at the numbers on the buttons, presses one at bottom left, and steps back into the back right corner of the car, presumably waiting for it to move. There's nothing unusual about this. It's what people do when they step into elevators. What's more, 
Lamb wasn't wearing her glasses, so it makes sense that she'd have to get up close to see the numbers. A few seconds pass, though, and the door doesn't close. This is when Lamb steps forward at the 19-second mark and very cautiously leans toward the open door. She looks out into the hall, first to the right, then to the left, in a manner that seems wildly exaggerated, like someone overacting in a student film. Then she jumps back into the elevator. Whatever she saw or heard seems to have spooked her, and Lamb subsequently hides in the right front corner, where it would be harder for anyone walking by to see her. She doesn't hide there for long. At 40 seconds, she looks out again, this time staring down the hall to the right for 10 seconds, at which point her behavior gets really strange. Lamb steps out of the car, then in, then back out, makes a series of slide steps and disappears from the frame to the left of the open door. Her right arm dangles into view a few times, so it's clear she's standing just to the left of the open door, and she stands there until 1 minute 30 seconds, at which point she re-enters the elevator with her hands raised and pushes numerous buttons, seemingly most of them, with many punches at the lower left where door close is located. When the door doesn't close, Lamb steps into the hall again, and just about the two-minute mark begins to do the thing that freaked viewers out the most. Lamb stares intently to the right of the frame, up the hall, and begins to wave her hands around like she's conducting an orchestra or trying to wipe away a cloud of smoke in the air. She waves her arms, wrists limp, then wrings her hands. Anyone watching for the first time, seeing this behavior with no sound, would assume she's talking to someone. But no one appears. At 2.28, she exits the frame for the last time, taking several short, almost stutter steps, and then is gone down the hall. The elevator finally closes and leaves without her. The video then continues, just a shot of an empty elevator car for another minute and a half. So much about this footage is strange and off-putting that it's hard to know where to begin. It would have been eerie to watch if you stumbled upon it randomly and devoid of any context. It's downright creepy when you know the person acting so oddly in an elevator that never moves has been missing for more than a week from a hotel on Skid Row. On closer inspection of the video, though, other peculiarities emerge. For one thing, the timestamp has been redacted. The clip also seems to be sped up at least a little, although without the timestamp, it's impossible to tell by how much. Finally, there appears to be at least one jump in the tape, suggesting some footage was missing. But again, that's impossible to prove. The LAPD released it without comment or explanation. The result was that the video blew up. It went viral in the U.S. and in Canada, where it received 3 million views and more than 40,000 comments in the first 10 days. There are now dozens of versions of the video on YouTube, some with voiceovers and theories added. The most popular version has nearly 12 million views. 
Within hours, forums were open and buzzing at Reddit and Web Sleuths, two popular hangouts for the discussion of unsolved crimes, where amateur detectives congregate to pour over clues and trade sometimes reasonable, but often ridiculous speculation. In Elisa's case, the early comments circled around two conclusions. Either this missing Canadian girl was under the influence of some illicit substance, or she was flirting with someone who's not seen. Perhaps it was even both. These are not outlandish theories, having watched that footage with no sound. But the way in which theories spiral out of control was evident within the first 10 comments on Reddit, where one user suggests that Lamb seems to be on heavy psychedelics, and points out that the papers had reported the next stop on her tour was Santa Cruz, a city which, he notes, is renowned for heavy drug use. From here, the conversation rapidly spirals into the possibility and feasibility of covertly dosing someone with LSD via skin contact. People imagined all kinds of things in that footage. That Elisa Lamb was hallucinating, that she was having a psychotic break, that she was playing hide-and-seek, that she was taken at gunpoint by someone who never appears in the frame. Follow the wrong thread and you can wind up through the looking glass, where theories get truly outrageous. Malicious poltergeists, demonic possession, an assailant using cloaking technology, even government mind-control experiments. Many users seized on what appears to be a third foot connected to a body otherwise out of frame at 227. This foot is often cited in arguments for a mystery murderer. If you look closely, it is probably a shadow of Lamb's foot, but many, many viewers are sure it's proof of another person who was there in the hall, waiting for Lamb, drawing her out. This is who Lamb's talking to when she's waving her arms around. It's the only possible conclusion, and the owner of this mysterious foot, they were sure, took Elisa, and had either killed her, or was still holding her, somewhere out there, possibly even inside one of the Cecil's hundreds of rooms. Five days after the video's release, guests at the Cecil complained to hotel management that the water pressure was unusually low, and what little liquid was actually flowing from the taps seemed peculiar. One guest reported a funny taste. Another said that when she turned on the shower, it was coming out black for the first few seconds before clearing up. Like many older high-rise buildings, the Cecil uses a gravity-fed water system, in this case a set of four 1,000-gallon holding tanks on the roof, and that's the first place a maintenance worker checked when he was sent to investigate the cause of the water trouble on the morning of February 19th. By the next day, word leaked that the worker had found a female corpse in one of those tanks. News reports immediately suggested that the body was Lamb's, but the LAPD refused to speculate, pending identification by the coroner. Two days later, on February 21st, police confirmed that the body was Lamb's. She had been found near the bottom of a tank that was three-quarter filled with water, nude, with her clothes nearby. Those clothes, a pair of shorts, men's size medium, a t-shirt, black underwear, sandals, and a red American apparel hoodie were a precise match for what Elisa Lamb had been wearing in the video. 
Because the hatch on top of the tank was too small for rescue workers to enter, they used power tools to cut into the bottom and retrieve the body. The process took several hours. It's her, Officer Diana Figueroa told reporters. They've confirmed it with the body markings. Police told news outlets it was being considered a possible homicide. Lamb's body showed no obvious signs of external trauma, said another spokesperson, who added that detectives suspected the body had been in the tank all along and wasn't recently dumped there. Finding Lamb in the water tank was a grim resolution to the three-week-old mystery. But rather than ending speculation, the circumstances only added to it. There were no security cameras on the roof, and while the door to the roof was not locked, hotel management said it was alarmed. So, if this were a murder, someone would have to have circumvented that alarm, climbed a ladder ten feet up the side of the water tank while carrying a body, opened a hatch, and dropped it in without anyone seeing anything. And if it wasn't a murder, then Lamb did all of that herself. Going to the roof in the middle of the night to scale a tank that she was, in all likelihood, seeing for the first time, then opening the hatch and either jumping or falling in. Neither solution made much sense. Where the story goes from here depends a lot on how you look at the world. If you're a logical person and adherent to fact and reason, you follow a pretty straight path which seems to be more or less the one taken by the LAPD. If you're a freer spirit, the kind of person with a wild imagination, open to alternate realities and conspiracy theories, well, you probably see this all very differently. You're in for a crazy ride. What's obvious is that context and coincidence dictated every element of how people thought about Elisa Lamb's case. Had a young Canadian woman vanished and turned up dead at a courtyard Marriott, say, the story would have been important, but ephemeral. The inexplicably creepy elevator video lit the match that sparked global interest. But the fact that her death occurred at the Cecil Hotel was the accelerant. From the very early days of Lamb's disappearance, the Cecil was as much of a main character as the woman who'd gone missing. And once she was found dead, many stories hinted, if not outright suggested, that the building itself played a role. Hotel with Corpse and Water Tank has notorious past, was the headline on a CNN.com color piece published along with the news story about the discovery of Lamb's body. Since its construction in 1927, it's been the focus of suicides, murders, mystery disappearances, and serial killers an Australian news site said of the hotel. Home to murderers, maniacs, and ghosts. Some say the Cecil is anything but your average hotel. They say it's cursed, reported one blog. Another simply called it Serial Killer Central. It's true that the hotel has been a hiding place for some famous killers. The Cecil was the base for Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker who murdered at least 14 people during a spree that terrorized L.A. over the spring and summer of 1985. Ramirez would return to the Cecil after a killing and ditch his blood-soaked clothes in the dumpsters out back, 
Then, walk into the hotel, either naked or maybe in his underwear, none of which would have raised an eyebrow since the Cecil in the 1980s, as local tour guide and amateur historian Richard Chave put it to me, was total unmitigated chaos. In 1991, six years after Ramirez was caught and sentenced to death, a 41-year-old Austrian journalist named Jack Unterweger checked into the Cecil while he worked on a story about crime in L.A. for an Austrian magazine. Unterweger used his reporting work to secure ride-alongs with LAPD vice cops, and those trips were revealed as scouting missions when it was later discovered that Unterweger was also a serial killer with a penchant for strangling prostitutes. Kim Cooper, who is Chavez's partner at Esoturic Bus Tours, suspects that he chose the Cecil because of its connection to Ramirez. There have been numerous other violent deaths at the Cecil, including the 1964 rape and murder of a telephone operator and at least three suicides, all of them jumpers, one of whom landed on a pedestrian, killing him too and amortized over a century of residence that doesn't seem so unusual for a big city hotel of this size, particularly one located in a marginal area. Rumors that Elizabeth Short, the so-called Black Dahlia, stayed at the Cecil are likely false, says Kim Cooper, who is also a writer and has researched Short's story extensively. Short did stay nearby and perhaps visited a bar a few doors up Main Street from the Cecil the night of her notorious murder, but that's the extent of it. Still, Elizabeth's short story has eerie parallels to Elisa Lamb's. As Cooper points out, each was a woman in her 20s, traveling alone to L.A. from San Diego, last seen in a downtown hotel, and went missing for several days before being found dead under shocking conditions. Finally, and most apt, Cooper says, the deaths of both of these unfortunate young women inspired enormous media attention and speculation. The prevailing online opinion was that Elisa Lamb had been murdered. That was my first instinct, too. A young woman traveling alone vanishes from a seedy hotel with a notorious past on L.A.'s Skid Row, then is found two weeks later floating inside a water tank on the roof? It's a logical assumption. But as weeks passed and no suspects emerged, the story grew murkier. Lamb's parents never said a word to the press and quietly returned to Vancouver to bury their daughter. They later filed a wrongful death suit against the Cecil Hotel. It's still pending. The LAPD went quiet, too. And with nothing to report, the local news basically dropped the story. This left a vacuum of factual information that would soon be filled with all kinds of static. To the internet, Elisa Lamb's death was an unsolved mystery with an incredibly compelling piece of evidence, the video And forums continued to light up as users traded ideas, shared theories, introduced twists, and identified coincidences. First, there was tuberculosis. Around the time of Lamb's disappearance, the Centers for Disease Control dispatched a team to stem a TB outbreak on Skid Row. This is the largest outbreak in a decade 
the director of the LA County Department of Public Health said. Other than its size though, the outbreak was unremarkable. At least until the internet discovered a jarring fact. The name of the specific test being used to identify potential victims around LA was known as Lam Elisa. Any epidemiologist will tell you that Lamy-Lisa is the standard test for TB in humans, in use all over the world. Its name comes from a combination of lipoarabinomannan, a cellular marker present in TB, and enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, a form of test where the sample changes color if a particular substance is present. Still, the coincidence was too much for many interested observers. What on earth accounts for the absolutely insane connection between her name and the TB test? Asked one user in Reddit's conspiracy forum, where discussion of Lamb's case spilled over and attracted a new audience. That's way too identical to be a mere coincidence, wrote another. What the fuck is going on? Then there were the uncanny similarities between Lamb's death and the movie Dark Water, a Japanese horror film remade by Hollywood in 2005. The movie's plot centers on Dahlia, a woman who moves into an old apartment building with her young daughter Cecilia, only to discover that the building is haunted. The ghost manifests itself in a malfunctioning elevator and in dark water that drips from the faucets, bath, and ceiling. When the building's inept handyman is unable to stop the leak, Dahlia tries to fix it herself and ends up on the building's roof where she sees the same dark liquid leaking from a water tank. When she opens it up, the body of a missing girl is floating inside. The overlaps with Elisa Lamb's story, the plot, the character names, the details are so strange. Every time I recount them, the parallels creep me out. Taken together with the TB tests, the similarities seem almost impossible. You can see how this story metastasized so rapidly online. For months, the case was huge at web sleuths, says Trisha Griffith, who runs the site from her Utah home. It was also among the most discussed at Reddit's Unsolved Mysteries forum. A Redditor with the handle Maroon Wave, whose real name is Elliot, told me that, like so many people, he was pulled into the case by the video. At that point, he says, he was writing Elisa off as some ghost story. When he came across discussion of the TB test coincidence, his interest deepened, and pretty soon he was fully hooked by the story. It was so perplexing to figure out how she got into the water tank and piecing the case together just didn't make sense, he said. There was just so much misinformation given by everyone. As weeks and months passed, the conversation spread out of the comment threads on crime boards and began to sprout up elsewhere. The story's curious nature, magnified by the web, was featured by numerous websites that focus on the paranormal. Punchnells, Conspiracy Club, The Ghost Diaries, and more. Most chose to focus on the most salacious and tenuous aspects of the case, but there was thoughtful analysis, too. 
often written by people who had conflicting emotions. This case haunts me, Lucas Klaukian, a 33-year-old Canadian blogger who wrote extensively about the mystery, told me. Elisa Lamb is like the little sister of a close friend. She's from my town and from a culture I recognize and am closely familiar with. This death hits close to home. I know I want to know what happened. I want to solve it. That is a natural human urge. It's the reason, Trisha Griffith says, that Web Sleuths is so popular. Why people from every possible place and career drop by to discuss mysteries that have nothing to do with their lives. I could devote thousands of words to cranks and crackpots who add nothing to the conversation, but whose suggestions, tethered to some partial fact by the most gossamer filament, somehow persuade others. The subreddit Conspiro is one magnet for such people. There you'll find threads devoted to the Elisa Lamb Raytheon connection, as well as government mind control experiments. The idea that someone or something, possibly relating to the Masons, took over Lamb's mind, compelling her to climb to the roof and get into the tank. For many months, there was only this. Speculation, mostly garbage. At one point, an actual resident of the Cecil, alleged to be a registered sex offender, was named as a person of interest in a popular forum, complete with links to his identity. He was never an actual suspect, but the lowest point came when a brief witch hunt broke out over a death metal singer who calls himself Morbid. Morbid's real name is Pablo Camilo, and while he often comes across as a terrible human being, his only crime seems to be a taste for violent imagery in his music. Nonetheless, accusations against him spread, causing news stations in China to report it and forcing Camilo to issue a heated and tone-deaf denial. That is not to say that amateur sleuths can't contribute positive information. Considering what information the LAPD released, which is to say virtually nothing, some of the most illuminating facts have come from regular people who decided to seek answers on their own. Frustrated with the LAPD myself, I spent countless hours hunting for these kinds of leads in forums and under posts about Lamb. It was by reading threads that I learned why Lamb might have removed her clothes once inside the tank, how the coroner determined when she died, whether police dogs could have missed the body, and much more. One of the single best contributions anyone has made to the Lamb case is a video posted by a group called Film Transformer. In the film, two young Chinese men visit the Cecil and film their investigation, which includes the elevator, the various floors that were relevant to the case, and the roof, where they proved that even a year after Lamb's death. An open window leads to a ladder that anyone could climb up to access the roof. It's a short climb, just a single story. And so long as you don't look down and ponder the consequences of falling nearly 200 feet should you slip, an easy one. Either Lamb or a killer could have used this ladder to get to the roof without activating an alarm, if there really was one. And then, again, always... There's the video. I asked a film editor friend of mine, Gabe Rhodes, to take a look. 
His reaction was that the footage is a little fishy. I can see why people are suspicious, he told me. There are several spots where edits could be seamlessly hidden, he says, and compression which could indicate editing. Same with the time codes, which were redacted. The most egregious is when the elevator doors close at 2.58, he wrote to me in a summary of his analysis. There are definitely some frames missing from this action. On YouTube, others raised these same questions, sharing versions of the video with narration pointing out the moments where things seemed suspicious. Several posts pointed out that the version released by the LAPD looked so strange because it had been slowed down, and then shared the video sped up to real speed, 20.25 frames per second as opposed to 15, at which Lamb's movements, while still unusual, suddenly looked a little less creepy. There are thousands of Elisa Lamb videos on YouTube, just like there are thousands of conversations about her on other sites. What all these videos have in common is the central component the elevator footage. The video release is the single biggest reason that the Lamb case became such an internet phenomenon, one with a reach that would boggle the mind of the millions of people who only consume news fed to them by the media. The disparity between the reach of the Elisa Lamb case online and its presence in the mainstream media is vast. That's the difference between this story and say, the stories of Casey Anthony and Natalie Holloway. Those two involve young women caught up in macabre mysteries that were huge news offline as well as on the web. Elisa Lamb is almost entirely a fixation of the digital hordes. In May... I flew out to Los Angeles to check into the Cecil myself. I'm still not sure exactly what I was after. i just read so much about the place that I felt the need to stay there and see it in three dimensions. Elisa's death was the last straw for management, and the Cecil's famous sign, which had hung out over the sidewalk facing Main Street for decades, was removed sometime in 2014. It's been replaced with one that simply reads... Stay on Main. The lobby I recognized is basically unchanged from the days of the disappearance. Unchanged, in fact, from the heyday of the Cecil. Art Deco chandeliers dangle ten feet above the polished marble floors, while brass fixtures and faux Roman statuary decorate the walls. I expected to be creeped out, having read too many stories of the hotel's twisted history, but even after dark, the lobby vibe was more Belgian backpacker than serial killer. Young people who care about ping pong and don't look closely into bathroom corners seem to be the target audience. At least until you get into the higher floors. My room was on the fourth floor, which had both shared bathrooms and ensuite rooms available for an extra $20 per night. In the days leading up to my visit, I'd been corresponding with a woman named Natalie Davis, who I'd contacted after reading a comment thread under a YouTube video. Davis had spent a night at the Cecil early in the year and was horrified to learn, weeks later when her mom forwarded a news clip about the case, that she'd checked into the hotel the day after Lamb went missing. 
Davis didn't like the Cecil, and not just because it's cheap. The energy inside the place was so darn heavy and uncomfortable that I just couldn't stand it, she told me. Her experience was in my head as I walked around the Cecil, but I didn't have similar feelings. Mostly, I just found the place shabby. Despite having 700 rooms, the hotel felt strangely empty. On its higher floors, the Cecil is especially strange and quiet. On the 14th floor, where the elevator footage of Lamb was taken, the sound of a man preaching on a religious radio station came loudly through tinny speakers in a hall with maroon walls and white ceilings. I stood still, listening for any sounds of residences, a vacuum, maybe, or a sink, or a TV. There was only preaching. Guests of the stay on Maine are now limited to a maximum of 21 days, but many floors in the hotel still house full-time residents. There were at least 100 of them in the last reference I could find, and this mixed use for the building apparently complicated the LAPD's investigation. In the case of a hotel, management can give permission to police to search every room in the building, but because the Cecil still contains so many private residences, detectives require probable cause to enter any one of them. There is no public record that any of them were searched, and detectives declined to address any specifics of the investigation. I know the police searched the hotel, at least to the extent that they were legally able. I know they canvassed the neighborhood, hung flyers, and scoured hundreds of hours of video. But walking the floors, past silent door after silent door, it struck me as a nearly impossible task to definitively eliminate the possibility that the woman you're looking for could be hidden on the other side of any one of them. I walked up the stairs from 14 to 15. At the south end of the floor, a short stairway led up to the door that opened onto the roof, now clearly marked as locked and alarmed. A sign warned that the area was under surveillance, that trespassers were subject to arrest, and that there was the serious risk of injury or death. There was no such sign around the corner, where an open window led to the fire escape. I stepped out onto it and turned around to face the building. There, riveted into the exterior wall, was the short ladder that still offers an easy climb to the roof. A brave or intoxicated person could easily make that climb, but a man carrying a woman? That would be tough. Following Elisa's footsteps took me back to the one place we know she had been, the elevator. I found its optics immediately familiar. In three dimensions and full color, the Cecil's elevator is silver. For some reason, I'd pictured gold. And the numbers on the buttons are mostly worn away. I'd been there, in that space, probably 50 times, trying to get inside Elisa's head. But in person with normal light at normal speed, it wasn't at all creepy. The whole hotel is like that, honestly. It's not nice, but it's not terrible either. It's just a little ragged and filled with people not unlike Elisa Lamb, young and on the move, 
having recently arrived from other places. Inside the elevator, I stood by the panel and pushed the door hold button. Nearly two minutes elapsed, one minute 54 seconds to be exact, before the heavy doors finally slid closed. On June 21st, 2013, five months after Elisa Lamb's disappearance, the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office finally released its report on her death. The official cause of death was drowning, with bipolar disorder listed as a contributing condition. Two different medical examiners signed the report's findings, dated June 19th. A complete autopsy examination showed no evidence of trauma, it said. Toxicology studies did not show acute drug or alcohol intoxication. The report went on to mention Lamb's bipolar disorder and the fact that she took medications for this condition. Those medications were listed, as well as the dosages prescribed, but limited sample availability prevented the examiner from determining which drugs and what quantities were in her system at the time of death. Police investigation did not show evidence of foul play, the report stated, A full review of the circumstances of the case and appropriate consultation do not support intent to harm oneself. The manner of death is classified as an accident. And that was it. After nearly half a year of mystery and intrigue, Lamb's death was ruled an accident, and the LAPD closed the case. Essentially, their combined conclusion was that a young woman struggling with a diagnosed psychiatric condition experienced some kind of psychotic episode at the hotel. That episode explains the behavior in the video and the actions she ultimately took, going to the roof, climbing up a ladder onto a water tank, opening its hatch, and getting inside. Once there, bobbing or swimming or maybe even panicking in eight feet of water, she was trapped and ultimately drowned. In the pantheon of accidental deaths, it is unquestionably bizarre. Every time I tell the story, I have my doubts. But lacking even a shred of alternative proof, it's the best possible answer. Honestly, it's the only one that makes sense, even if it doesn't make much sense at all. But many of the questions I still have are probably answerable. And what's most frustrating is that I'm certain those answers would crush much of the speculation about Lamb's death that continued even after the case was closed and, to some extent, lingers to this day. Those questions remain unaddressed, however, because the detectives refuse to comment. Over the course of reporting this story, I tried repeatedly to interview the case's two primary detectives. Greg Stearns, and Wallace Tunnell, but calls and emails went unreturned. Detective Tim Marcia, who also worked on the case, replied to an email. He told me, however, that because he wasn't one of the two primaries, it wasn't really his place to comment. He did confirm that there was no security camera in the 14th floor hallway and that the lead detectives worked very hard on the case, especially when Elisa was missing and there was a possibility that she was still alive. What Detective Marcia didn't point out, but what I subsequently realized thanks to numerous references by forum users, 
is that Lamb's disappearance coincided almost exactly with another incident. On February 3rd, Christopher Dorner, a disgruntled former LAPD cop, went on a shooting rampage that became, for a few days, one of the biggest stories in America. Dorner posted a manifesto on Facebook declaring war on the LAPD, then went on a spree that resulted in the largest manhunt in the department's history, culminating in a violent standoff in the San Bernardino Mountains on February 12th and Dorner's death. Knowing this, it made some sense why the Lamb case didn't get more play in the media and why it may have seemed, or even been true, that the department spent less effort working on it than it may have otherwise. Regardless, Detective Marcia was confident that the official conclusion was correct. Without going into her diagnosed psychological problems, we, law enforcement and medical consultants, can conclusively say that her behavior was consistent with her diagnosis, he wrote in an email. When I told him that the other detectives weren't getting back to me, and that the department's silence was enabling amateur sleuths who are probably doing more harm than good, he replied with this. The problem with amateur sleuths is they make their assessments based on the limited amount of information law enforcement provides. The media outlets then manipulate the materials to accommodate their needs, leaving the sleuths with only partial truths. When viewed by someone that wants to support their agenda or conspiracy theory, they will overlook the reasonable slash probable and jump to the possible. A few minutes later, another message arrived. Josh, good detectives operate under this principle, Occam's razor. Other things being equal, a simpler explanation is better than a more complex one. In other words, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Once the horses are eliminated, then move on to the zebras. Still, I kept after Greg Stearns for weeks, getting only silence. Finally, in late June, once I'd sent a handful of messages to his LinkedIn email, a last resort, I got a reply. Spoiler alert, it wasn't very satisfying. I have received your emails and understand your article and what you are trying to accomplish, Stearns wrote. Unfortunately, Detective Tunnell and I are not in a position to assist you. We are not able to provide any additional information as it would violate the privacy of Elisa and her family. And that was that. Further pleas were ignored. What happens when police departments stonewall you is that you start to get frustrated. And that frustration very easily leads to suspicion, especially when the department has a checkered history like the LAPD. That's exactly how this case spun out of control. Information pushed into the public domain by the police, the video, sparked interest. But then disengagement from the people in charge created room for wild theorizing. But, really, when I sat and stared at my list of questions, none seemed likely to break the case open and suggest a more plausible alternative to the conclusion reached by the coroner and, by proxy, the detectives who wouldn't talk. Others agreed. 
One was Dr. Drew Ramsey, a psychiatrist at Columbia University who also happens to be a friend. Ramsey has extensive experience seeing and treating patients with psychosis and manic depression. Based on the video alone, his instinct had been that Elisa Lam probably had a psychotic episode that led to her death. He based this opinion on the behavior he observed in the video, the same behavior that launched a thousand crackpot theories. Watching the video, this is classic internal preoccupation and psychosis, he wrote to me in an email. She is paranoid and looking for someone. She presses all the buttons, takes those measured steps, and has the stereotyped hand gestures, all classic psychosis. When I sent him the autopsy report, it confirmed his suspicions. And the medications Lamb was taking clarified the picture even further. We have a clearly psychiatric patient with depression and mood instability at a minimum, treated with multiple meds at the age when things like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia tend to blossom. I heard nearly the same thing from Samantha Oliver, a 29-year-old from the Boston area who recruits engineers for a tech startup, but who might be familiar to users of Reddit's Unresolved Mysteries as the moderator Hammy Sammy. Oliver had been actively moderating the Lamb threads from the onset, and after reading and approving months of mostly ridiculous theorizing, she felt like she had to say something. In June of this year, she wrote a post titled Resolved, with the goal of silencing any remaining skeptics. Oliver, I learned, was uniquely poised to have a grounded position. As a moderator for a forum that trades in information about suspicious cases, she knows a true mystery from one that's built on agendas, half-truths, and misunderstandings. But Oliver took an added interest in Elisa's case because she had a deeper understanding of the issues at hand. In 2010, she spent eight weeks in the psychiatric ward at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore after a series of partial psychotic breaks sparked, she thinks, by use of Adderall. This mystery is resolved, Oliver wrote at the top of her post. The official conclusion that she had a manic episode and accidentally drowned is supported by a breadth of physical evidence as well as established medical opinion, which I have outlined in excruciating detail for your reading pleasure. That detail follows, and it is indeed thorough. Oliver then concluded, Though this case is resolved, I will admit that it's very interesting and unusual. To be fair, according to the wiki, the medical examiners had classified her cause of death as undetermined up until three days before the autopsy report was published when they changed it to accidental. While I had a lot of fun researching the whole thing, the case of Elisa Lam is not a mystery. It's a tragedy. A tragedy, Ramsey said, that isn't even that mysterious. The evidence is right there in the video. What does make sense is a woman who is very paranoid, who clearly wants to hide. We already see that her preference is to hide in a container like an elevator. What's another great place to hide? A water tank. The way she behaves in the elevator fits with me, purely as a psychiatric diagnosis, and fits with the circumstances of her hiding in a container. What's the safest place you can hide? She kind of found it. Nobody found her for two weeks. By the time I'd finished dissecting the case, I mostly felt sad. I felt complicit, too, for indulging the cranks, 
and for whatever role this story plays in the perpetuation of the legend her death has become and will forever be, whether that's a collection of forums filled with wild speculation or season five of American Horror Story, subtitled Hotel, and inspired, according to creator Ryan Murphy, by the elevator video. What I really want, more than anything, is to be able to add something of value beyond the debunking of half-truths and outright myths. What I'd like to do is to be able to tell Elisa Lamb's story before she got on a plane for California. Unfortunately, that's much harder than I'd like it to be. Her parents have not spoken publicly since their daughter went missing. Her sister Sarah, a makeup artist, didn't respond to messages I sent, and considering what the internet has done to her sister's image, I completely understand why she'd choose to ignore a journalist writing about it. The things that I know about Elisa Lam, then, are sadly few. She was a 21-year-old first-generation Canadian who attended the University of British Columbia, but was not enrolled at the time she set out to travel around California by herself, by train and bus. Her parents, both from Hong Kong, own a Chinese restaurant in the Vancouver suburb of Burnaby, which closed for weeks after Elisa's death. During that time, people placed flowers outside the doors. Those are the facts. Beyond that is only a fragmented portrait assembled of pieces pulled from her own online persona, the one she created herself before the rest of us took over. The reality about the things we write online is that they live on in abstract well after us. That means anything you read after the fact, particularly in a case as fraught and mysterious as this one, takes on the color of its context. Judging by her blog, her tumblers, and her Instagram, Elisa Lam was smart and funny, often sarcastic, and interested in many of the things that attract other intelligent, curious women her age literature, architecture, photography, and especially fashion. Like so many of us, Elisa's problems seemed to mostly lie within, and she wasn't afraid to say as much online for whoever happened to find her there. Her tumbler, which she called Nouvelle Nouveau, alternates between light and dark, between anger and optimism, between heavy quotes about loneliness and identity, and things chosen, I assume, because she found them funny. It is pointless to draw any assumptions about the person from the images she grabbed from other websites and collaged on a page, but it felt good to be laughing at things that Elisa selected precisely because they were funny. This person, viewed through a very tiny virtual window that features only a few lines of her own writing and no pictures of her own, was somehow more alive and three-dimensional than any version of Elisa Lamb I'd found so far. Until the fall of 2012, when she noted that she was, quote, much more active on Tumblr, Elisa kept another blog, which, though infrequently updated, seems like an honest and raw account of her feelings. Frustration, disappointment, confusion, and a fair amount of self-loathing. Elisa felt that she ate poorly and didn't exercise enough. She considered herself lazy and was worried about what she'd do with her life. In other words, she felt the kinds of things we all feel at 21. But Elisa had bigger, realer issues, too. Depression haunted her, and it seemed to flare up in 2012, causing her to miss classes again. 
In three years, Elisa writes, she completed only three courses and was officially still a first-year student. Meanwhile, her peers were moving on, and that reality cast her further adrift. She slept during the day and was up at night online, reading about fashion and posting to social media where there's always someone to talk to. Her penultimate post, written on April 4, 2012, is titled, Worries of a Twenty-Something, and is particularly painful to read in retrospect. I spent about two days in bed hating myself. Why don't I simply do the things that I know will make me feel better? It isn't rocket science. It isn't that difficult. Get out of bed. Eat. See people. Talk to people. Exercise. Write. Read. The post from there is no less self-excoriating. A public airing of the qualities Elisa most hates in herself that finishes with these lines. The only thing that does make you different is that you're a complete utter failure and have depression, so la-di-da, that makes you special. Why are you so proud of that? Oh, it's special because people can pity you and you can manipulate them with their pity and use them to just wheedle out more time. But you don't do anything. God, I hate you so much. That last line stopped me. It was the point at which my exploration into Elisa's online persona in search of her actual person ceased to feel like journalism and started to feel like voyeurism. Without access to any humans who'd known her, I was fishing around in collections of her thoughts, many of them dashed off in her most vulnerable moments. I felt a little sick. That was when I noticed that the post had 48 comments. It seemed like a lot for a student's blog. I clicked. The first was left by a concerned reader, offering help, written 10 weeks after the post itself. But the next 47 were all written after her death. And the first one, posted March 1st, 2013, at 2.52 a.m., restored my belief that chasing Elisa's internet ghost was a worthy exercise after all. Here's that post in full. Elisa, this will seem stupid to many people because I am writing to a dead person. I don't know you, and we have never met or even knew of each other's existence until your tragic fate. When I first heard of the news and saw your picture, I don't know why, but I felt torn and drawn to you. I became obsessed in finding news articles about the case. I tried, but could not let it go. I became obsessed in finding more about you. Now, after reading your tumblers, tweets, and this blog, I am at a loss for words because I feel like I am literally staring at a mirror of myself. Your words are the very words I've spoken and typed in my life. Your questions are ones I've asked myself so many times. Your fears, regrets, and even the joys and cheers. I understand the cause of your depression, as it is for me. The unfulfillment of two greatest desires, to be loved, to be understood. 
you are a perfectionist and you are looking for perfect love. And so much that to the world you seem odd and out of place, this leaves you feeling like nobody understands you. At times you want to be like everyone else. But inside, you know you cannot be contrary to yourself. You wonder often, why is it so easy for everyone else? Why is it so hard for you? I hope in death you will still be able to read this letter. Because at the very least, you would know, someone does understand. But even in death, you have helped others. Because knowing you, now I know someone understands me. My whole life I've asked that question too, if only. If only someone understands me, understands what I am going through. The irony of life that I finally found someone who does, and she is gone. My only regret is not finding you sooner. Sigh. God bless you. Good journey. It's easy to grow exhausted and be demoralized by the internet, which seems to enliven all of the world's worst humans, providing a bullhorn for hatred and anger to be spewed with no repercussions, thanks to anonymity and the ease and safety of yelling at a screen by typing capital letters on a keyboard. Online, it often seems as if everyone is a bully. Or if they're not bullies, they're cranks who do wrong, even when they're trying to do good, as is especially true of people who contribute to message boards about unsolved crimes. Too much zeal is a dangerous thing, as when Redditors fingered the wrong backpack wearer in the immediate aftermath of the Boston bombing, or when they accuse a death metal singer of involvement in the death of a young woman no one knows. But reading the comments on Lamb's blog under a passage that was so raw and honest that I'd felt bad reading it, was an important reminder of another thing the internet offers. Community. These comments were left by passers-by who came because they were curious and stayed because they found company. One anonymous writer shared a story about how the death of a friend brought together many people who had drifted apart which is a specific way of conveying the message that even the absolute worst things can bring some good. Up until the end, I was still hearing from Elliot, the 16-year-old high school Reddit user who couldn't shake the particulars of the case. Like me, he was trying to create a picture of who Elisa Lamb the person was. And, like me, Elliot's interest shifted after reading her blog. Instead of looking at the story as entertainment, he started thinking about who Elisa Lamb was when she was alive, he said. That's what kept bringing him back. Elliot was still obsessed with the case, but now felt a deep connection to her, and thus I wanted to know how she died and why she was acting the way she was acting in the video. More than two years later, he's a little embarrassed to recall the time when his interest was more impetuous. In retrospect, that seems wrong. Too many approached her case like some horror or paranormal activity movie, he told me. Everyone thinks that just because she stayed in a hotel that past serial killers have stayed in means that she was murdered when the facts do not point to that. Like me, he was trying to redeem the story in some small way.
I want her legacy not to be remembered as the girl who was decomposing in a hotel's drinking and showering water. I want Elisa to be remembered as a girl who was incredibly honest with herself and the world. I want her to be remembered as the girl who loved reading Gatsby in French, loved learning new things, and had an exquisite taste in fashion. But I also want her death to be remembered as a tragedy, because we lost someone who would have made a difference in the world. Essentially, Elisa's is a tragic legacy because it wasn't until she was found dead that she finally became alive to the world. This story was written by Josh Dean, edited by Bobby Johnson, and fact-checked by Sarah Sloat. Photographs by Daniel Shea for Matter. This is Will Wheaton. You are listening to Radio Free Burrito. We will be right back. So this weird thing happens to me as I am reading this story and thinking about you know, sort of the wider implications of the story. And I thought that Josh did a a beautiful job articulating a lot of the feelings I had. There is a moment where I stop feeling like an interested observer and I start feeling like a gross voyeur. And that almost made me not tell this story. It made me almost just not record it because, you know, I have, it's, it's personal and it's weird, but, um, I think that it is actually really important for us to confront that reality, that voyeuristic reality, and to confront the, like, absolute true horror of how the death of a person becomes this thing that captivates and fascinates uh, uh, such a wide portion of the population to the point where it inspires the uh, storyline of, uh, you know, a a very highly rated television series. I think that this works in, in, you know, a sense of a a Halloween sort of thing uh, in a a number of different ways, especially if we consider that, you know, one of the things that we like about Halloween um, is being scared and being forced to sort of like look at fears and things like that and and usually that's confined to the the scares that we get of like Orson Welles said in War of the Worlds uh, someone putting on a sheet hiding behind a bush and jumping out and saying boo for me as a parent the thing that I fear the most my greatest fear is outliving uh, my children I mean, that is a thing that keeps me awake at night, and I'm still young. I'm 43, my kids are 26 and 24, and that is something that, you know, I mean, like the song goes, as soon as you're born, you start dying. But when there are people in your life who you would really, and I don't mean in the poetic sense, but you would really, I would lay down my life for my kids without even, with a second, I wouldn't have to think about it that when there is a person or persons in the world who mean that much to you and they could somehow not be there, that that is the most terrifying and most horrific thought I can imagine. So while this story of the 
unbelievably tragic death of Elisa Lam is creepy and does have that paranormal aspect to it, that aspect that initially drew me to the story, which I think if you knew about this before you heard this podcast, it may have drawn you to it as well. Just those weird, freaky parallels and those things that just seem too creepy to possibly be real. The, you know, the thing where this, where when you throw out the actual explanation, the simplest explanation and choose to look at the uh, second simplest explanation, an explanation where something going bump in the night is actually some sort of paranormal creature or whatever. Um, when, when, we, when we take those things away, what's left is a young woman at the very beginning of her life reaching her life's end. And you know, I've I've said this before. I I've talked about it when I talk about the death of River, River Phoenix and and how I you know I lost him when he was 23, and I lost another one of my friends. One of my very good friends committed suicide when he was 26. And I think about these people whose lives were over before they began. But if you tried to tell someone who is at a point in their life where what they really want to do is climb up that ladder on the outside of a hostel in downtown LA because that seems like the best option that your life is just beginning and there's there's just so much just there's so much left for you just get to the end of the day and you know and and if you, if you know if you don't want to go to sleep wait until you can see the sun rise up because eventually the darkness and the shadows are are driven away and what makes this story so tragic and haunting and and as i said ultimately horrifying is that if you accept what what i accept which is this is the story of a very troubled young woman who at her darkest darkest moment did not have a hand to hold then um, that is the scariest thing that can happen uh, right so I've gone and made this Halloween episode especially dark and um, uh, well sometimes that's the that's the way that things happen good god i just realized that it was on well we don't know for sure because they didn't find him until after halloween but we figured that it was right around halloween that uh that my friend uh hung himself and of course we know that it was around this time that anyway um you're never alone even when you feel you're most lonely Please remember that there is someone who loves you and you, you mean a lot to someone somewhere, even if you don't feel that way. Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and, and sign off now. Um, I still have a lot of work to do to prepare for BlizzCon and uh, I still have to go back now and put all the music into this uh, episode. So um, thank you for listening.
Thank you for subscribing. If you like the podcast, um, I would love it if you would rate and review us on uh, iTunes or wherever you happen to find the podcast. Please tell your friends. Um, And if you would like to hear a podcast that is uh, strictly uh, humorous and ridiculousness uh, and uh, me and my friend talking about uh, bad TV shows, I encourage you to listen to the TV Crimes podcast that I do with my TV I don't know when the next episode of Radio Free Burrito is going to come out. I am in preparation for hosting BlizzCon for most of next week, and then I leave to go work on Powers, um, and I'll be on location for a while. I hope to have time to do a podcast there, but I just don't know what's going to happen. So um, thank you very much for listening, and uh, I would very much appreciate your feedback in the comments so I know if it's worth my time and my money to invest in shows like this in the future. And um, I hope that wherever you are, uh, you have a wonderful weekend. And if you care about Halloween, Dia de los Muertes, uh, All Saints Day, uh, and who can forget November 2nd? I mean, come on, remember, remember the 2nd of November. It's three days before the 5th of November. The rhyme that was originally I was stealing from. That is how the rhyme goes, he said. I hope you have a great whatever it is that you can possibly have. Um, I'm Will, you're you. This has been Radio Free Burrito, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Radio Free Burrito is copyright 2015. Will Wheaton, it is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. For more information, please visit creativecommons.org. For show notes, links, and pretty pictures, visit RadioFreeBurrito.com. The show is written by me, with the exception of today's story, which, as you know, was written by Josh. The show is produced, mixed, and released by me, Will Wheaton, because I'm a one-man guy.